Our passage today is about oaths and vows. Now, it may seem a little anticlimactic after we've been in our discussions over the last few weeks over or Matthew chapter 5, where we've dealt with things like murder and adultery and plucking your eye out and lopping your hand off. And now we come to this idea of, you want to talk about oaths and truthfulness? The issue we're addressing here goes to the very core, though, of a person's character, to the heart of what it means to live as a child of God. We live in a culture in which truth is often the first casualty of our interactions, and when truth goes down, then many times it leads to the relationship or relationships that we're involved in leads to them breaking down. We have an incredibly elaborate system in our culture of lawyers, contracts, notaries, binding agreements and signatures to ensure that we will tell the truth, and at least when it's perceived to be important enough that we would, we would hold up to it. And none of it, though, seems to be working in our society where we work around documents, and that's why the law field continues to grow because we need more contracts and more ways to say, here's how we're truthful with each other. This year, as we walk through Matthew 5 bit by bit, Today we continue it as we continue in a new series I'm calling Healthy Relationships. As I went and studied the text and looked over the next few weeks, that word jumped off the page and said these next few passages that we're dealing with all tie into relationships and that all the different kinds of relationships that we have based on a Sermon on the Mount. And we've already dealt with some tough stuff. We've dealt with anger. We've dealt with sexual fantasy. We've dealt with divorce. All these hurt our relationship or even destroys the relationship. Now Jesus, though, it turns his attention to what probably is the most destructive force on earth, and that's the tongue. A small item that we all have. And Jesus starts to address and says, this thing can destroy if not handled right. Let's take a look at our passage, Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. We've been walking through this. We have actually have spent 15 Sundays walking through Matthew chapter 5, just trying to understand Jesus' words. And as you turn to Matthew chapter 5, remember, Jesus is writing this to a primarily, or, or speaking these words primarily to a Jewish culture. And his disciples are in that culture, and they, they're used to the Jewish law. And so he's trying to raise the bar and saying, I understand you understand the Jewish law, but there's so much more to the heart of what I was trying to say and what God's trying to teach you. And so we pick that up in verse 33. It says, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. These five verses, Jesus, first of all, reminds us of the Mosaic principle. He ties back the Old Testament, and the Mosaic principle of honesty was always part of God's plan. He says, remember, long ago. He's focusing on the Mosaic law. Second, he challenges the perversion of the teaching of dishonest oaths and promises. And then third, Jesus reemphasizes the integrity that is a hallmark of a Christ follower when someone says, I follow Jesus, that we are people of integrity. And so let's consider these three thoughts this morning. The first one is this, the principle of God's word is honesty. 
Look at Matthew 5, 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. The traditional teaching that Jesus quotes here is based on Mosaic law. You find it in Exodus 20, verse 7, Leviticus 19, 12, Numbers 30, verse 2, and Deuteronomy 23, 21. All of them come to this idea what Jesus is speak, speaking here of Mosaic law. He brings together two ideas. The first is the idea of breaking your oath, which means to perjure oneself, to swear falsely, or to make false vows. Jesus is bringing it up and saying, you know, we don't break our oaths. We don't make false vows. The second idea is to fulfill the Lord's vows, which literally means to enclose as with a fence or to bind together. That the truth of an oath or a vow is enclosed, bound, and therefore strengthened by that which is invoked on its behalf. And Jesus draws into this because they understood Mosaic culture. They understood the Mosaic law. And he says, this is what you've heard. This is what you have been taught. But even a superficial reading of these commandments indicates plainly their attention. You can just kind of just read over them and get an idea quite simply. They proho prohibit false swearing or perjury. They forbid making a promise and then breaking that promise. A clear description of oaths, though, is in Hebrews 6.16. It says people swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. So no, in other words, they name something or someone to give credit to their oath and specifically they're calling on the name of God which invites him to be the witness, to be the truth, to the one to say, I am calling on God and that's how truthful I am in this oath. You've probably heard someone say or maybe you even said it before yourself to say, as God is my witness... You've heard that terminology. That's what they're saying. As God is my witness, I make this oath. John MacArthur writes and says, An oath was therefore generally taken to be the absolute truth, which puts an end to all arguments because it is invited judgment on the one who violated his word. That's why at a wedding, couples getting married, they stand and they make a promise, I'll have you from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer and poorer, and sickness and health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. And usually they end with the words that something along the lines of, according to God's holy law, and this is my solemn vow. What are they doing? They're making an oath and saying, before God, I make this promise. In other words, you're calling in the greatest creator, the greatest being that God, doing so, recognizes and affirms our commitment to honor the special sanctity that God places on marriage. So in the Old Testament, that was a normal thing. Principle, the Old Testament principle there is a swearing of an oath, and added emphasis was that promise. However, it's not supposed to be a substitute. It's not supposed to be a substitute or nor excuse for not telling the truth in all times. And what Jesus was dealing with in that culture is they would make an oath on God, but then other areas, they were not always telling the truth at all times. So the principle of God's word is honesty, but the problem with oaths was deceit. They were using workarounds around oaths because they wanted to practice deceit and make things work for their advantage. There was four students who came running into an exam very late at college one day, so late that the other students were already turning in their tests and their exams and were exiting the room. These four students came running in and the professor was like, where have you been? You knew this is a huge exam. How could you miss this exam? What's going on? And the one driver said, well, um, can you please let us take the test? We had a flat tire. She stopped and thought for a moment. and Sure, I'll let you take the test. Just go have a seat in each four corners of the room, and I'll bring your test to you. And she brought the test, turned it upside down. She says, when I say I want you to turn it over, and we'll all 
take the test. I'll give you time to get this done. Turn it over. And there was just two words. Which tire? Four students practicing deceit. That's the culture we live in. How can I get around something? How can I make it work to my advantage? The Old Testament teaches that oaths may only be made in God's name. Deuteronomy says, you shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship Him and swear by His name. The Pharisees got to work on these awkward pro- prohibitions and tried to restrict them. They tried to come, come up with workarounds. And so they developed elaborate rules of taking vows that allowed an escape clause that provided small print uh, to those who were shrewd and small print, to those who are enterprising. And it just reminds me, I'm sorry to offend if you're a lawyer in here, but it seems like lawyers always have a workaround. Yeah, the contract says that, but they missed this part right here, so let's get this workaround in there. That's what they were doing. But vows with a missing ingredient were integrity being challenged. People could now declare anything and promise anything with an oath while having no qualms about lying or breaking their word because it was not in God's name. So they were swearing on, well, by heaven or by the temple or swearing by the priest. And Jesus is basically saying here, you can't stand up and swear, well, by this person or by this place or whatever, because they all fall underneath God. Long gone are the days of making a contract with a handshake, aren't they? Whatever happened in those days to be able to shake a hand, you know your word was your bond. Even in a court of law, placing one's hands in a Bible and declaring, I swear by Almighty God to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, is no longer a guarantee that the truth will be heard. We live in a world, I think, that is characterized by the word fudge. Think about it for a moment. Do you know where that word comes from? It's very interesting. I didn't know this until studying for this sermon. The word fudge comes from a certain sea captain. His name was Captain Fudge, commander of the Black Eagle. He became notorious for telling all kinds of lies, tall tales, and exaggerations about his improbable adventures at sea. His ship was apparently used for transporting Quakers, forcibly transformed from Newgate Prison in August of 1665. A few months later, when 19 of the prisoners and 8 of the crew died of the plague, the crew mutinied and Fudge was arrested for debt. By the mid-1800s, the expression, no fudging, was being used by an American children to dissuade friends from cheating at the game of marbles. We use it today to describe someone misrepresenting or being economical with the truth. We say things like, they were just fudging the truth. They're just fudging the truth. It's just a little white lie. Bill Hybels puts it like this. He said, let's face it. At one time or another, everyone is tempted to fudge a little. None of us is totally honest all the time. We occasionally exaggerate. We tend to break our commitments from time to time. We can trace this kind of misbehavior all the way back to the opening scenes of the Bible when Adam fudged by blaming Eve for the way they had violated God's command. Ever since the earliest days in human history, the world has feasted on fudge. Sadly, he said, we still do today. A signature on a marriage certificate? Are we just kind of fudging the marriage certificate? Or do we really mean it? A signature on a check? Does it really mean something? A signature on a contract? Does it really mean something? Is it really guaranteed? Does the handshake today, does it just really matter? Or is that just uh, some action I'll go through? The principle of God's Word is honesty. The problem of oaths is deceit. And the pattern for Christ followers is a pattern of integrity. Look at verse 34. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, there it is, for it is God's throne, or by earth, that's where people are just swearing on different things, for it is His footstool. 
See, when you say by heaven or by earth or by this or by that, it all belongs to God anyway, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Just say yes and just say no is Jesus' principle. When you manipulate words to get your own way, you go the wrong way. And Jesus' point here, I think, is very profound. That God does not acknowledge separate categories such as sacred or secular. God does not acknowledge that, well, you made that promise under the throne of heaven, or you made that by Jerusalem, or you made that by my name, that that brings more value. They're all equal. All truth is God's truth, just as all creation is God's creation. And so every lie, therefore, is a lie against God. And every false promise in some way dishonors his name. Life cannot be divided into neat, watertight compartments and say, well, I can live a life of truth in this area, but maybe I can do some other things and scoot around the issues over in this area. We cannot use one kind of language in the church and another kind of language in the office. We cannot say I'm a Christ follower and I'll do some things to Christ when I'm around my Christian friends, but then go and live however I want to do, live with my friends who I go out and play golf with or go socialize with. Cannot be one kind of ethics in a church and another kind of ethics in the business world. It's all consistent, and that's what Jesus is getting to. John Maxwell has written a book called There's No Such Thing as Business Ethics. In it, his principle is that God is everywhere, and He's in every activity of life. He, he hears not only the words which are spoken in His name, He enters every conversation. All promises are sacred because all promises are made in the presence of God, and truth has no degrees or no shades. A half-truth is a whole lie, and a white lie is really black. The principle is this, if I'm standing over in the corner over here having a conversation with you and I tell you something, I say, I promise to do this, or you make a promise, even though no one else is around, God is in that conversation. And our yes should be yes, and our no should be no. Why is integrity important? Why is Jesus even driving at this issue to say to them, listen, stop this old thing, stop calling on the names of all this other kinds of stuff, stop it all, and let your yes be yes and your no be no. Why is that important to Jesus? I think for two things. One, of, one and most importantly, is it affects your relationship with God. God is a God of truth. God is a holy God and He calls us to be holy. And we accept Christ as our Savior. We walk in Him in that, in that goal of life to say, I'm going to be holy. Psalms 51.6, God desires from all of us truth in the innermost being. And according to Proverbs 6.16 6, and 17, among the things He especially hates is a lying tongue. In Revelation 21.8, we're warned indeed that the destiny of liars is a lake of fire. That those who live in untruthfulness and don't come to a point of honesty could ultimately possibly be separated from God for eternity. So we care about our eternal destiny. We care about our walk with God and who He is. Then Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no because it impacts our relationship with God Almighty. Secondly, I think integrity is important because it also affects your relationship with one another. Your integrity and your yes be yes, your no be no affects your marriage. It affects your co-workers. 
It affects the clients that you work with. It affects your sales business. It affects your students if you're a teacher and you're thinking about going back to school. Yes should be yes and no should be no. In Andy Stanley's book, Visioneering, which is a book about leadership, he writes and says, moral authority is critical, non-negotiable, can't be without an ingredient of sustained influence. Moral authority is the credibility you earn by walking your talk. It is a relationship other people see between what you say and what you do, between what you claim to be and what you are. He goes on and says, nothing compensates for a lack of moral authority. No amount of communication skills, wealth, accomplishment, education, talent, or position can make up for a lack of moral authority. He also writes and says, we will not allow ourselves to be influenced by those who lack moral authority in our eyes. Inconsistency between what is said and what is done inflicts a mortal wound on a leader's influence. For this reason, moral authority is a fragile thing. It takes lifetime to earn, but it can be, mo- it can be lost no moment and once it's lost it's almost impossible to restore integrity is important it affects your relationship with god it affects your relationship with others so how do we grow in this how do we grow in the idea of saying i, I want to live a morally integrity integrity life of integrity and a life of honesty i think first of all we need to acknowledge that sometimes the struggle to integrate words and actions I think sometimes we, we live a life that maybe is not always a, of integrity and we don't even do it purposefully. I mean, think about some of these statements for a moment. If you've said them or if someone has said them to you. Have you ever said to somebody, I promise, or has someone said that to you? And maybe you don't follow through on a promise or they don't follow through. Have you ever said, hey, I'll pay you back tomorrow. You go out to lunch with some friends and, oh, I forgot my wallet, I'll pay you back tomorrow. Do you really intend to pay them back? Are you really going to do it tomorrow? Or, or what about this one? I love this one. It'll only take a minute of your time. When inside you're going, if I can get a minute and then I can squeeze out an hour or two. What about this one? I'll call you back. Drives me crazy. Of course, in our texting world and technology world, maybe it's not as often. Drives me crazy when I, someone leaves a voicemail or they have their voicemail and it says, hello, you've reached so-and-so. Uh, please leave your name and number and I'll call you back. And I leave a message, and you wonder, are they going to call back? Are they going to call back? Are they going to call back? We just sometimes do those things and not even think about it. But it is a question of integrity. It's a question of honesty. If we spoke that, are we really going to do it? Here's a good one. And I hate to admit it, but I think most of us parents with children, uh, we're probably guilty. This is going to hurt me more than it will hurt you. My mom and dad used to say that to me, and I know I've spoken with my children uh, or something along those lines. Is that really true? What about the check is in the mail? Dealing with some bills at home, dealing with some things, you're dealing with some creditors and they're calling, you're like, yeah, the check's in the mail just to get them off your back and all along you're going, that check's not really in the mail, but I know it'll kind of quiet them down and leave me alone. What about this one? And this is, this is the church. I'll pray for you. Are you really going to pray for them? I mean, are you really going to take the time when someone comes and says, hey, this is going on in my life, my marriage is falling apart, I've been sick, or I'm stressed, I'm dealing with this, and, and you're kind of going, man, I'm listening to them, and maybe the way to end the conversation is tell them I'll pray for them. Hey, I'll pray for you, and then you get out of there. Are you really going to pray for them? You know, I think there's a better response. A better response is when someone comes and share with you, and you know they're needing prayer. A better response is to grab their arm or put your hand around them and say, hey, let's pray right now about what you're going through. 
and you pray with them right then. Or a response could be, hey, I'm going to do my best to pray for you, but every time you come to my mind, I'm going to, try to, I'm going to try to remember to pray for you. And I've said that to people say, listen, I'm going to try to pray. I can't promise I'm going to do it every single day, but I'm going to do my best to try to remember to pray for what you're, what's going on. That's a lot more honest than just trying to say, hey, I'll pray for you. Because sometimes we use that as a way just to get away from people. We move it, use it as a way to move on in the conversation. Have you ever said to somebody, just trust me? Someone's telling you, just trust me. I think your radar should go off. Why do they got to tell me to trust them? Are they not a trustworthy person? And if you're saying that to people, you should look, stop and look at your own integrity and go, am I really a trustworthy person? If you ever had someone say these to you or, or you've said them, you know how it feels. You know how it feels when someone has said something and you're like, did they really mean it? Does, is it really true? And then we turn and say those kinds of things. We've got to admit, if we're going to grow in integrity and honesty, that sometimes there's some areas of life that are sometimes just kind of difficult. We've got to be willing to admit that. Number two, we've got to admit wrong and do... Uh, Admit wrongdoing and swiftly ask for forgiveness. we got to admit when I've done something wrong and say, God, I need forgiveness. Ask God to show you. God, show me where I've let lies into my life. Show me, God, where I'm just doing white little fibs. Show me, God, where I'm just kind of fudging the truth. And as God shows that to you, to confess that to Him and then possibly even go to the other people who you offended or hurt and have some time of confession and say, I haven't been 100% honest. I need to come clean before you. And spend that time in confession. Corey Tenboom in her autobiography, The Hiding Place, says, the blood of Jesus never cleansed an excuse. And sometimes we get hung up on excuses of why I lied or why I fudged the truth. Jesus can only cleanse honesty. An honest confession to say, I've messed up. I wasn't forthright. I wasn't 100% truthful with you. Confess it instead and to God and to those who you have wronged. And God is a promise-keeping God. He's a promise-keeping God. He never lies. And we can have rock-solid confidence that He'll keep His promise to cleanse us, to purify us from all unrighteousness. Third, commit yourself to truth-telling. Someone once said, reliability builds credibility. Reliability builds credibility. So when people know you're reliable, they know you're credible. So when you speak something and then you do it, and you, when you speak something and they know it's truth, then it builds your credibility. Ann Hibbert says in, in her journal, Life at Work, says the test of character comes when being truthful endangers what you want. Stop and think about that for a moment. The test of character, the test of character comes when being truthful endangers what you want. Because why do, why do we lie? Why do we fudge the truth? Why do we just have a little scoot around? Because usually we're trying to protect ourselves and our desires. King David put it like this in the book of Psalms. He said, Lord, who may live in your sanctuary? Who may live, your, live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless, who keeps his oath even when it hurts. Even when it hurts. Even when maybe the outcome may not be exactly what you desire to be truthful. Now, John Maxwell, in that book that is referred to, offers 10 rules of respect, which he recommends we commit ourselves to live by, by asking others to do the same. And as I read through that, I thought, you know, there's some great principles of how we live in a life of integrity and truthfulness. Let me share them with you. Number one is, if you have a problem with me, come to me privately. That's a great rule to live by. 
that you have an open door and says, if I have a problem or a challenge, then you come to me privately. So that means husband and wife, go privately. Don't go to a friend and say, let me tell you what my husband did. Let me tell you what my wife did. I can't believe they did that. That hurts integrity and honesty. Go to your spouse privately. If I have a problem with you, I'll come to you privately. And so you make a commitment in your relationships that, hey, whenever there's a challenge, whenever there's a rough spot, we will sit and we will talk to each other face-to-face. Let me reiterate, face-to-face, not via social media and email and text, face-to-face and deal with whatever the issue is. Number three says, if someone has a problem with me and comes to you, send them to me and I'll do the same for you. So that means... Hey, if someone comes to you complaining about your friend, then you say, hey, have you talked to them? Someone comes to you complaining about their spouse. Hey, have you talked to your spouse? Someone comes to you complaining about your boss. Hey, have you talked to your boss? And you point them back in that direction so they can be truthful and they can deal with that relationship. Number four, he says, if someone consistently will not come or, or will come and not come and say, let's go to him together. If they keep coming to you over and over, say, hey, I will go with you. I'll go with you to talk to your friend. I'll go with you to talk to your spouse. I'll go with you to talk to your boss. I'll go with you to talk to your, to your friend who's on a, on a committee at church. Go together. Number five, he says, be careful how you interpret me. I would rather do that myself. On matters that are unclear, do not feel pressure to interpret my feelings or thoughts. It's easy to misrepresent my, my intentions. And that's so true. Sometimes we don't go to people because we think, well, if I go to them, they're going to get mad. If I go to them, they're going to respond this way. If I go to them, this is how they're going to respond. And John Maxwell's saying, listen, be careful how you interpret. Go to them and trust God than to handle truthfulness because that brings out truthfulness. And he says, I'll be careful how I interpret you. Number seven, if it's confidential, don't tell. If you or anyone else comes to me in confidence, I won't tell unless the person going to, going to harm themselves, the person who's going to harm someone else, or involves a child who has been physically or sexually abused, I expect the same from you. And so there has to be a practice of confidentiality. If I come to you and say, i got to deal with some stuff, and, and it's some challenges and, and some issues, but to know that you're not going to take that and go to run somebody else. Number eight, I do not read unsigned letters or notes. I think that's a matter of integrity and honesty. In our world today, I want to be anonymous. Well, let me go and write this anonymous letter, anonymous email, send it on to somebody and not put your name to it. You want to be a person of honesty and integrity, then you're willing to put your name to it so that you can sit down and have an honest discussion. There's nothing wrong with sending that to open the door of conversation, but in it, it should somehow say, I'm sharing my concerns and I want to sit down and talk with you. And here's how we can get together. Number nine, I do not manipulate. I will not be manipulated. Do not let others manipulate you. Do not let others try and manipulate me through you. And manipulation is a game. And manipulation is part of untruthfulness. And number ten, when in doubt, just say it. If I can answer it without misrepresenting something or breaking a confidence, I will. Ten rules, just quickly to think, how do you handle relationships? You summarize all those down together. They tie right into Matthew 18 that basically says, when you have a challenge with somebody, go talk to them. In all relationships, co-worker, parent to child, husband to wife, friend to friend, church member to church member, neighbor to neighbor, the principle is this, go talk face to face and speak truthfulness. And sometimes truth hurts. But we can bring it in gentleness and say, I've got to bring something to you. I've got to bring some truth to you. I've got to bring a challenge to you. Can we talk it through? Think about how our integrity and credibility would grow. How our relationships would be improved if we loved one another in that kind of way. And it demonstrates, do we trust God to handle the relationship or not? 
Bill Hybel says, God's concern is that we become habitual truth-tellers, whatever the cost. Whatever the cost. It will not be the expense of our integrity nor the honor Jesus will bestow upon us when we meet Him. That we will be truth-tellers. We'll close with this thought. See, I think why this integrity issue of truthfulness is so important is because who are we going to reflect in our lives? See, God is the all truth. Jesus is that reflection of God, and so Jesus is all truth. And then Satan is the father of lies. So we as Christians, when we take on the name of Christ, we say, I would choose truthfulness. And I'm supposed to reflect Jesus, who is light and who is truth. If we choose to choose to lie and dabble in falsehoods and fudge the truth and have little white lies, what we're doing is saying, well, I really want to be a reflector of who Satan is. What's Jesus addressing? He's saying, who are you going to reflect? Are you going to reflect me or are you going to reflect the father of lies?